to the Faith Cuff Podcast. Join us as we continue our Chasing the Wind series, a study on futility and fulfillment in Ecclesiastes. We do pray and ask that God's Spirit would breathe on us through His Word and would give us a word that we need to hear for each of us this morning. And so my prayer for you and for me is that God will open up his heart to us as we look into his word in perhaps new ways that we haven't uh, looked or experienced before. We are in our new series on Ecclesiastes that we're calling Chasing the Wind. And if you were with us for the introduction last week, you know that this word breath, hebel in the Hebrew, is the word that the teacher, Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, uses to describe life in this world. Life is a breath. A mere breath. Everything is but a breath. And it it talks about the fleetingness of life, the the ephemerality of life in this world, and how as human beings we are here today and gone tomorrow. And he asks the question, what gain can we hope to get out of life in this world? Life under the sun. And so we are embarking upon our first round of a study in futility and fulfillment through the book of Ecclesiastes. We're doing a five-part series now before Christmas, and then we're going to come back in the new year, and we're going to do a deeper dive into the middle of Ecclesiastes, and we're working our way through the first three chapters right now. Do you ever wish your life was better than it is? You wish it was different. Do you wish you had more than you do? You ever struggle to find satisfaction or contentment in the day-to-day living? I know I do. You always feel like there's more to do or more to achieve or more to pursue in order to finally arrive at that destination that we're hoping to get to. And how do we know when we'll have arrived? It might just be possible that there's a a fatal flaw in our human thinking. There might just be a glitch in the system that continues to undermine our highest hopes and our best laid plans and, and leaves us always feeling weary and worn out and tired and disappointed again and again and again. See, the reality is that we are surrounded by people who are living for all that this world has to offer them. When in the end, what what Kohelet is going to tell us is that nothing in this world ever truly satisfies. It's all just empty. Meaningless, the NIV says. Worthless. It's all but a breath, but a vapor. It's nothing you can ever really grasp in your hands or hold on to. And so we began last week with the first three verses, and we're going to continue through verse 15 today, where Kohelet is going to continue to introduce his thinking to us and to give us the context for this grand experiment that he's going to invite us to to journey with him through. In verse 1, he starts off by saying the words of the teacher. And again, teacher is uh, Ecclesiastes is the Greek form. Hebrew is Kohelet. And in English, we can say it's the teacher or the preacher. It's one who gathers the assembly of the people uh, to speak or to teach for them to listen. 
son of David, king in Jerusalem. And if, if any person might expect to be able to gain from all their labor in this world or in Israel at this time, it's the king, right? Particularly a king like Solomon who was famed for both the amount of wisdom that God had given him and the amount of wealth and power that he was able to accumulate in his lifetime. See, if getting ahead of the game is the goal in life, if that's the purpose for why God created you and me and put us on this planet then there, to all appearances, there is no one better than King Solomon to be voted most likely to succeed. But the teacher, this king, gives us his conclusions right from the beginning, and we're a little astonished, we're a little surprised, right? And the NIV says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. And again, if you were with us last week, we talked about how this word meaningless is perhaps an unfortunate word that the NIV has used for the translation because this word breath, the hebel, the Bible has, a, 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 it's not that there's no meaning to life, it's that there's, there's no utility to life. There's nothing to be gained in our own power to try and find profit from life in this world. Everything, he says, is a breath is the more literal translation. Now, it's hard when translating from one language to another to capture the multiple layers of meaning that can be in, in a word, especially if it's a more poetic writing. And scholars suggest that that's one of the things that is happening here with this word hebel. That to literally say that everything is a breath is a part of what he's trying to get us to understand, that, that life is fleeting, that it's ephemeral, that it's difficult to grasp, it's like a breath or a wind or a vapor, but there's this other sense that we're supposed to be capturing here, that, that life itself is not something that is within our ability to grasp or to hang on to or to control for our own benefit. You may have heard the more common translation, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity, right? That's uh, the, how the New King James uh, interprets it, They're in the New Revised Standard, the English Standard versions, they all use the word vanity. And I, and I think vanity is a better word, and it's probably the best word to use in an English translation, but for me, it's still not as clear because we don't use vanity in our common language as often anymore in the sense that he uses it here. Right? There's two definitions for vanity. The first definition is excessive pride in, in or admiration of one's own appearance or achievements. That's the vanity we're familiar with, right? You're so vain. You probably think this song is about you, don't you? You're so vain. That's, that's the vanity we know, right? So that's kind of where my mind goes when I hear the word vanity. But there's a second definition that means the quality of being worthless or futile, vain. To do something that is useless is to do it in vain. There's no result that comes from it. There's no profit that you can gain from it. If it doesn't produce the results you're looking for, it is something that is worthless. So I think for us, in our context, even though it's less poetic, the word futile really gets at the heart of what the teacher is trying to get us to understand. Something that is futile is incapable of producing any useful result that we would hope for. 
So given the fleeting and uncontrollable nature of life in this world then, the big question that the teacher asks is this, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? And we talked last week again, a quick review, that there's two phrases here that he's going to use throughout the book to help us understand this larger question. What do we gain? What do we profit from in life? What is the purpose for why God created us? and life under the sun. He's not looking at eternal life. He's not concerned with heaven or hell at this point. He's talking about from birth to death, our life in this world, life under the sun. What is its purpose? Why are we here? What do we hope to get out of life? What do you gain when it's all over? What do you keep at the end of your life that you didn't start with? And he's going to continue in verse 4 today talking about this context in which he's going to conduct his case study under the sun. When he talks about life under the sun, he's talking about creation because he's writing from a biblical perspective. The created world in which we live is the created world that we are a part of. And too often it's easy for us to forget that we are created beings and not gods ourselves. And so he continues to introduce us to his thinking and he explains the context in which we find our lives. Join with me in verse 4 and see if this resonates with your experience of life in this world. Generations come and generations go but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. You see, he's trying to get us to, to take a step back, to look at the world we live in, to understand the creation that God has made that we are a part of, that he's placed us in, and to understand that ultimately the very nature of the universe, of God's creation, resists our attempts at human comprehension and manipulation and control. Think about what he's shared with us, right? The sun rises in the east. Where are we here? And sets in the west. <laughs> the wind blows from the south to the north. The water goes to the sea and returns to where it comes from, right? How does it do that? It evaporates and it goes up and then it flows back down. We've got east and west, north and south, up and down, 360 degrees of anywhere you look. And it's amazing how this ancient book had such a, a simple grasp of the actual science of our world, <laughs> Everywhere you look, it's the same thing. Creation plods along on its course that God established it to, to do. It's doing its thing, never changing in its process, over and over again. So he says in the beginning of verse 8, thus you can look and you can begin to feel like all things are wearisome, all things are, are toilsome. They just repeat over and over and on. Do you ever feel like your life just kind of is on spin cycle? 
All things are wearisome, more than one can say. And because of this ongoing cyclical nature of the creation that we live in, everything in life endlessly cycles through its ordained motions, created the way it was made by God. And nothing we do can change the course of creation. So for human beings, if we really want to be honest with ourselves about the context in which we find our lives occurring in this world, it's a pretty heavy burden to carry. Because in the context of all of this, our life is a blip on the radar. And what can we hope to do? What can we hope to accomplish? What could we hope to gain from from living in such a creation? He goes on to say, even our very own human nature is a part of the same dynamic that, that we feel it in our lives when we recognize the relentless and the insatiable nature of our own creatureliness, right? The second half of verse 8, he says, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. And so he comes in to bring it for a close in his introduction in verse 12 by saying, I, the teacher, I, Kohelet, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. And he gives us a quick executive summary before he takes us on our journey. What a heavy burden God has laid on humankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. All of them are futile. All of them are useless. It's a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Men and women, do we understand that the world we live in is for all intensive purposes, for us, an unchanging place. Not malleable to our efforts to control it, to change it, and to use it for our purposes, for our profit, to make ourselves happy. God never designed it that way. That wasn't his intention. All these natural phenomena continue to toil steadily away, away, around and around, going about their appointed tasks without change or variation. And the, the only rule here on earth is that there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing breaks the, the rule of regularity and predictability that can be seen in all things. Why? Because that's the way God made it. In the, li- in the process, our lives and the very memory of our living are simply erased by the sands of time. No one remembers the former generation. Even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Are you guys depressed yet? <laughs> you 
You see, I think what, what Kohelet is trying to get us to do is he's trying to use shock and awe to get us to pay attention to the very possibility that we may be believing a lie about our life in this world, that we might be living under an illusion, that there might be a veil in front of our minds that allows us to think that the reason that we're here and what's going to make us happy is what it is, when all the while it's something completely different. We human beings as participants in the drama of God's creation who pass briefly by on the stage of life that this world provides are relatively insignificant when considered in this larger context of creation and history. Kohelet might say, who do you think you are? Who do I think I am? Maybe a quick dose of reality will wake us up. And it's not unheard of in the context of biblical thinking, right? Psalm 8, verses 34. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Who do you think you are? Who do we think we are? You see, his point is that the very nature of our human existence as creatures created by God in this world resists our attempts at seeking fulfillment and innovation and creation in our own strength. Because he's God. And you're not and neither am I. This is the context in which he wants to do his case study. You see, the reality of the created world in which human life actually occurs, not the world we wish it was, not the world we think it could be, not the utopia that we think we can build through science and technology, but the actual world that we live in that occurs under the sun, between birth and death. In this case study, he's going to walk us through three experiments where he's going to explore wisdom to see if there's any profit there. He's going to explore pleasure to see if there's any profit there. And he's going to explore the world of stuff <laughs> and see if there's any profit there. Intellectualism. Hedonism, materialism, all of these things that human beings for centuries have continued to try and pursue to make meaning and value and find profit in living, he's going to walk us through each one of them. But before we can understand the value of his experiment in the case study, he needs us to understand the truth about the world in which we live. What investment in such a world will actually produce a return? Right here at the beginning, he gives us this executive summary to remind us that life in this world is simply a heavy burden. It's a miserable business if all you're doing is looking for what you can get out of it. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, and all of them are meaningless and futile, a chasing after the wind. So first of all, we have to understand that wisdom is important. 
He's going to talk about the value of wisdom, but he's not going to say wisdom should be thrown out the window. He's going to use wisdom to examine life in this world. But what he wants us to understand is that wisdom, first and foremost, helps us to understand just how impossible it is for us to control and manage our own lives, to produce any different result than God has already ordained for each one of us. Looking at this world with wisdom will reveal that trying to find gain or profit in this world is what puts the heavy burden of that uh, disappointment and that frustration on life because somehow you just never quite get there. And to keep trying to grab the brass ring or the gold ring is like chasing after the wind. It's an illusion. You get there and you go to grab it and it's nothing but a mist. It's a mirage. And so he says the first step is we have to learn to accept the reality of life in this world. And and, and this burden that God has laid on humankind, one scholar suggests we have to not too quickly judge God as if somehow the desire of his heart is to place burdens on life and make it difficult. That's a misunderstanding of the Old Testament view of who God is. See, the first impression is that somehow he has this desire to kind of giggle and say, oh, look how hard I'm making it for him. That's not what's going on here. See, God giving this miserable business really is that God allows us to choose to go our way in this world. The same verb that is used here that God gives or God lays on is is to permit or to allow. And we know that God permits everything that happens in this world, right? He is sovereign. And so if anything happens in this world, it happens because God has allowed it. And so in that sense, in a general sense, it's his will, but it doesn't define God's heart, which is a different form of God's will, God's desire, God's intention for you and for me, for why he created us and what he hopes we'll experience and what the outcome is that creation is leading towards. That's God's heart. That's God's will for you and for me. You can understand if you go back and understand who the, who the Bible reveals God to be, that God's judgment isn't God's heart. Right? His true desire is to bless people, to love people, to offer grace and forgiveness. That's what Jesus came to reveal. God would rather have his creatures repent and turn from their sin and be healed and be forgiven. That's God's heart. But God doesn't force himself on anyone. And in order to give us freedom to choose to be in loving relationship with him and with one another, he allows people to suffer the consequences of their own choices. And so when God allows us to take on the consequences and responsibility of our own lives, then of course life becomes a heavy burden and sometimes a miserable business. Because of all of our striving and our struggling and our chasing after the wind that keeps us feeling dissatisfied and unhappy and out of control. Which is why he ends this section in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Now in order to to really understand this proverb, right? This is a a little two-sentence wisdom proverb that he's giving us here. We have to look at it, the same one he uses again very quickly in chapter 7 verse 13. Here he says, consider 
what God has done. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? You see, the emphasis is on accepting what comes from the hand of God. Believing and trusting that he's a good God. That he knows what he's doing. That he's got your best interests at heart. That he loves you. And he wants you to experience the joy and the abundant life that he created you for. But too often, we think that we know better. We think there's a better way. We listen to other voices. And so we end up striving against God's will. We end up thinking that we have a, 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 the power to make the life the, the way that we want it to be. And so the futility of living in this world is to be understood precisely in the terms of our human refusal to accept life the way it is, the way God made it. To think that what God has made crooked or twisted, somehow we can straighten out. Or in the second phrase, even more kind of silliness, right? Refusing to accept that if there's any profit in this world, we can count it when there's nothing there, right? Who can count what is lacking? It means there's this deficit. There's, there's nothing there to count, but we still go back and try and count it. And how silly is that? You keep trying to count what's not there. You keep looking for the prophet that was never designed by God to be a part of life. You keep expecting the world to give you a different result, but you're missing the whole point of why God made it to begin with. Our human efforts to impose our own will and our own self onto the reality around us is a foolish undertaking which can only end in our continued pain and frustration and worry and disappointment because we're not God. And what God has established can't be altered, manipulated, changed, and used for our benefit. So what kind of profit accrues from a person's labor and toil under the sun, he asks? What reward is there for all of the toilsome work that life is trying to make it through this world? His first point is that there's no profit worth speaking of. And that can be crushing, that can be disappointing, that can leave us dejected and feeling, well then, what's the point, right? But he needs to get us to this point of stripping away our illusions to, to get to the point where he really begins to ask the question, given this context in which we find ourselves, the created order of which we are a part, why do you imagine that gaining a profit in the short span of your life is the purpose for why God created you to begin with? Where did that idea come from? Why do you think that? I almost kind of imagine God in the story of Adam and Eve coming to them in the garden after the fall, right? And he's like, Oh, we hear God, we got to hide. He's like, hey, why, why are you hiding? He's like, whoa, we were naked. We didn't want you to see us. Right? And what does God say? What's his question? Who told you you were naked? Who told you that you're supposed to profit from your life? 
Who told you that your life was about striving to achieve and to accumulate and to store up treasure and to gain wealth and to amass stuff and to not deny yourself any pleasure, but to to go for the gold and to, to, to just look out for number one? Who told you that? Did God tell you that? Did the Bible tell you that? And behind the question is one that we all have to face, honestly, who are you really living for? Who is the God of your life? Kohelet is not so alone in this perspective as we might think, right? The New Testament also knows of a creation marked by hebel, by futility, all by one that will one day give way to a, a new order of things, I'm going to quickly go through a bunch of scripture passages just to give you the context in which Kohelet talks with the New Testament, right? Romans 8.20, for the creation was subjected to frustration, same word here, futility, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. Romans 1, 1 and 22, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking became futile. They became hebel. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Ephesians 4, 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. James 1, 26. Those who consider themselves religious yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Same word, futile. 1 Peter 1.18, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty, futile way of life that was handed down to you from your ancestors. Second Peter 2.18, for they mouth empty, they mouth futile, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. Or what about Jesus' teaching? Luke 12, 25 and 26. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Why do you chase the wind? Why do you hope that you're going to get a different result? You see, a central theme that we understand of Jesus' teaching that Kohelet prepares us to be able to understand more clearly and through his personal example is that the proper way to live life in this world and to respond to the nature of reality around us is to give one's life away rather than to take it for yourself, to open your hands and let things go, to live generously, rather than to close your fists tightly around them, to demand your way, to grasp hold of what you want, and to the the hell with everybody else, and to try and use them for our personal advantage and our personal preferences and our personal desires. You see, what we know in retrospect that Kohelet didn't know is that it's only through Christ that there is anything new that has broken into this world that promises the hope that there's a better way and there's a different life in the future. 
whether it's the newness that, that God will bring at the end of history when, when the kingdom of God fully breaks into our present age, or it's the newness of life that Jesus offers to you and to me today in the present anticipation of living in that future now. And what we are reminded by Kohelet and by the New Testament and by all the biblical passages over and over again when we hold them together in context is that life is a gift from God. And because it's a gift, the only way that you can get it is to simply receive it. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't build it. You can't work at it hard enough. You just have to sit back and say, thank you, God, for everything you have made, including my life. To chase the wind is to seek to grasp hold of and control something that is beyond our grasp simply by definition. By nature, we are creatures in a created world. We are not God. But in exposing the truth about our lives in this world, Kohelet wants us to understand that there is a better way of being in this world than your ancestors have told you, that generations upon generations of human beings have failed to understand. That it's a way that God designed and intended creation from the beginning, that we were to bear his image, that we were to learn from him. To accept that he is God and that he's a good God and that he loves us. And because of that, we don't have to strive. The, the, the chase doesn't even need to happen. It's, all for the, the, uh, it's only for those who refuse to accept their creaturely nature and the reality of life in this world that life becomes a futile race to try and chase after something that doesn't even exist. Though much of life in this world may seem like futility, he's wanting to pull back the veil to say, even in spite of that, fulfillment can be found. Kohelis helps us to get this much clearer. Fulfillment is something we can find on this side of heaven. We can experience it today if we choose to allow his message to pull the veil back to understand that it's simply God wanting you to receive life as his gift and to recognize in each moment everything that you have and all that you are comes to you as his blessing, his desire for you to take advantage of experiencing his joy in the creation. Perhaps nowhere else will he state it more clearly, and we're gonna, not going to see it in this round, so we're going to jump ahead and we're going to close with this for today, Ecclesiastes 4.6. Better is one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Can I suggest for we Americans in the 21st century, better with one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind may be one of the hardest truths that we can accept and allow to change our lives. But that's God's invitation 
through the power of Jesus at work to reveal to us his intention to love us and to bless us and to give us the abundant life. So that's my hope in this series, is that God will reveal his heart in new and fresh ways for you and for me. Let's pray. Holy God, we are humbled by your word. I pray, God, that you will give us the courage today and this week and in the weeks ahead to get out of our houses and to get into your world and to consider the creation that you have made and to allow the trees of the the field and the, the rocks and the mountains to speak of your glory and your eternal nature and your power to bless us and to hold us in the palm of your hand. God, forgive us for the ways that we continue to seek to take back control of our lives, to try and be the gods of our own destinies, to feel like somehow we have to manage and control and manipulate the world around us in order to to protect ourselves and to find happiness. And give us the strength, God, to think in new ways, to understand that one handful with tranquility gets us closer to our goal than two handfuls with toil and a chasing after the wind. And we will thank you through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.